Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to regular panelists on Faith Matters, but always a pleasure to see them both back on the program. Gentlemen, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Faith Matters. Very briefly, in terms of an introduction, of course, to my right is Molana Ayaz Mahmoud Khan Sahib, who's a missionary here in the UK, and he's also member of the International Directorate of Publications for the Amdiya Muslim Community. Welcome, Ayaz Sahib. And to his right, of course, is Molana Abdul Ghani Jangir Khan Sahib, who's head of the Central International Desk for French-speaking countries here in the UK. A very big responsibility. And with that, we go to our first question, which comes from Yasmin Aman Saiba from Scarborough in the UK. Yasmin Saiba, thank you for your question. Um, Yasab, if I could start with you. She's uh, referencing a time which obviously happens to all of us have experienced this. When a certain person dies, we lose family members. And then, of course, prayers are said for that particular individual. And quite often it's said, and quite regularly, that you know, we should pray that their sins are forgiven, that Allah Ta'ala, God Almighty, grants them a high station in paradise. Um, she's, whilst accepting that principle, says that Allah also, uh, Allah Almighty tells us there would be no intercessor on the Day of Judgment. So her question is, in essence, if someone's deeds are already been sort of formulated and, uh, you know, but, and their end of life has occurred. What is the purpose of such prayers? I mean, what are people praying for and why are they praying in the manner that they do? Tariq mm. uh, wherever the Holy Quran says, where, wherever Allah states that there will be no intercessor on the Day of Judgment, this means that those people, that basically it's another way of saying that no one will be able to stand between God and man when justice is administered or when Allah is making his decision on the day of judgment on how people shall be brought to account. And that is particularly relevant today and especially when it was revealed the Holy Quran, uh, the Arab society and people of that era could understand this much more clearly in the sense that it was a practice, it was a custom that when uh, people lower down in the hierarchy as far as society was concerned uh, committed a crime, they were punished. And when uh, the sons and daughters of uh, chieftains committed a mistake or did something, the, they were protected and said that uh, we can't touch such and such person because he is the son of so and so. Mm -hmm. So this has, is what has been clarified here by Allah the Almighty, that on the day of judgment, everyone will be equal before the sight of God and no one will be able to stand in between God and his decision. There is definitely an aspect of uh, increasing the spiritual rank of people and benefiting people through prayer even after they have passed away. And that is proven uh, through the ahadith. For example, um, a person came to the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, and said that, O oh, Messenger of Allah, my mother has passed away 
And I know had she been alive, she would have given charity and she would have done such mm -hmm. and such good deeds. If I do this on her behalf, would it, would it benefit her and her spiritual rank? And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said, absolutely. Yes, it would. So there's that aspect as well. But I mean, if we're going to be praying for a known uh, habitual thief, murderer, uh, a, a person who did everything in the book which was unlawful, and expect that our prayers would save him from justice or from the decision of Allah the Almighty, from the verdict of Allah the Almighty, then this is obviously false. And that is what is inferred here when Allah the Almighty says that there will be no intercessor on the Day of Judgment. Nonetheless, as far as spiritual progress is concerned, this is something which continues even after we pass away. Uh, Islam says that the, the, the increase of spirituality takes place even in the hereafter. And there is a prayer in the Holy Quran, the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, proves this point by saying that in the Holy Quran, there is a prayer which the people of heaven offer. And that is, Rabbana atmim lana nurana, that, O oh Allah, complete my light for me which is a, a rough translation of that Arabic, which means that even in the hereafter, the people who are in paradise will seek to come closer and closer mm -hmm. to God, and they will seek for an increase in their spiritual rank. So that is there. There is an aspect of constant progress in paradise. There is definitely an aspect of uh, the progeny or posterity of a certain individual praying for their benefit, praying for their increase in rank. But that is only if they were basically good people. Even there is another form of intercession. The Holy Prophet wasallam, peace be upon him, said that on the Day of Judgment, I will be an intercessor for people. Now the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, has explained this. He says that in order for someone to benefit from the intercession of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, or in other words, for the Holy Prophet to put in a good word for a certain individual in front of Allah the Almighty is only possible if that individual has some likeness to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And he proves this, the Promised Messiah proves this by the word shafa'ah. Shafa'ah in Arabic, which is the word used for intercession, means shuf'un means likeness, something which is together. So in order for someone to benefit from the intercession of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, we have to be like him. We, I mean, we can have our weaknesses, we can, we can have our, 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 our weaknesses and deficiencies, but for the whole, as far as generally speaking, we must have some relation to the person who we are seeking intercession from. So once again, if a person is a habitual thief and, and a sinful person who does everything against the will of Allah, then he is not such a person who will benefit from the intercession of the Prophet of Islam. But if basically there is goodness and purity and piety, there, there is that spark, that spiritual spark in an individual, then such people can benefit from intercession. If they had some lapses, for example, mm. they might not have done everything that they should have done. Sure. But they were good people. Yeah. So that, Generally you know, speaking. that kind of thing which has left the gap that could be yeah. bridged by the intercession, yes. And I suppose there is some uh, sort of say in the, in the fact that if someone has people who is praying for them after they've passed away, I mean, that in its sex is reflective of a sort of a a noble, of yeah, and a noble yeah. attribute, yeah. perhaps, both of yeah. the people who are praying, but also that they're taking time to actually pray for that individual as well. well the thing is, is that, as the Prophet Muhammad said, that a person uh, can still benefit from their good mm. deeds after they pass away, as Yad has pointed to, as alluded to. He said that if, for example, you, you leave a fruit tree 
uh, in the ground, obviously, before you, you, you die, and people keep benefiting from that, that becomes like a continuous sadaqah or a continuous mm -hmm. charity on your behalf. And you will con continue to benefit from that even after death because people are still mm -hmm. deriving some kind of a, a benefit from it. And he also said, children, progeny who pray for you. And this is because you're the one who inspired them to do that in the first place. And so if after you die they continue doing this, that too is like a, a continuous uh, uh, form of charity. You know, goodness which remains and continues. And so you will continue, as long as they're praying, it's going to be like that tree producing fruit. And so you can continue benefiting from that. So there are some things which are encouraged in Islam um, to, to do as charity, so that even after you pass away, they could still be uh, you know, uh, allowing some kind of benefit to reach you, even after, beyond the grave. Jazakumullah, yeah. gentlemen, my thanks also to Yasmin Amensaiba for her question. We're going to travel to North America, to Canada, Toronto, for our next question, uh, which comes from Faida Minha Saiba. Asalaamu Alaikum. And thank you for your question. Um, her question relates to the concept of punishment and trial. And she's asking a question which I suppose a lot of people wrestle with. Uh, quite often when they're going through particularly troubled times, you know, there's some say oh, it's, a, it's reference to a period of trial, asmaish as it's called, um, or others would say, well, actually, this person is being punished for what they did. So it's a sazai, she says in her question. And her question, which is an obvious one, and I suppose a lot of people wrestle with is, when do you know something is a trial? And when do you know something is a punishment? Jangir Saab, if I could start with you. Well, you see, that. interestingly, um, the same incident, the same, uh, for example, an earthquake or tsunami or whatever it could be, could be a punishment for some and a trial for others. Because it all depends on uh, your you know, reaction to it and how you come out of it in the end. And uh, I'm reminded of a uh, saying which is attributed to the fourth caliph of, of uh, Islam, uh, Sayyidina Ali, radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with him, who is reported to have said that if a, a, this kind of an event, or, you know, which is perceived by some to be a punishment, but they're not sure, they might think it, it might also be just a trial, if it makes you go further away from God, if it drives you away from God, then it's a punishment. It means that God is uh, wroth with you and he you know, he, he wants to push you away even further. But if this, if this event actually draws you closer to God, then it was a, tr a trial, which also means that you've, you passed through the trial, trial successfully. And so you've come out the, on the other end closer to God. So you'll see that in many instances, uh, if you rel relate this, this to, to people who are agnostic or agnostics or atheists, you'll see that oftentimes they come out of these uh, cataclysms or, you know, whatever it is, uh, believers in God. Mm -hmm. Because at that point, they turned to God and they were saved. And they, they know, only they know what predicament they were facing and that they, there was no way they could escape, but yet they did. And so they completely changed their outlook on life. And, uh, but for others, they could come out completely destitute and completely you know, finished and angry with God, etc. So for that kind of person, it would be a punishment. So yes. that, that, that is something I, I think it plays on people's minds. I mean, this, again, perhaps extending the question, often we're told again that God doesn't burden a soul Beyond more than capacity. capacity yes. Absolutely. That putting in that context, if that's that inherently 
what a believer believes, then as such they will always look at these as an opportunity to improve themselves and perhaps improve their own lives. Exactly. Even though it's a time of great test and somebody, somebody sent me a, a, a word of wisdom a few mm. days back and I found that quite interesting. Mm. And they said that you see, the real prob problem in life is the problem of how do you deal with all the issues in your life. It's not the issues themselves that are the problem. Because he said, if you have a very good pair of shoes, mm. you can walk on very rocky terrain with relative ease. Mm. But if you have even one pebble inside your shoe, however good they may be, those shoes, you can't even walk comfortably on, on a nice, you know, asphalted road. Mm -hmm. So the real problem is what's in your shoe. It's not what's outside the shoe. Mm -hmm. So it all depends on how the person is going to deal with the issues, you know, and what they turn them into. And even the moral state of the individual mm -hmm. themselves is a wonderful way to gauge whether a certain individual is being tried or whether he is being punished by God the Almighty. And the Promised Messiah, salam, peace be upon him, he makes a really mm -hmm. wonderful point. He says that an individual should look within themselves and see their own moral state and then they will be the best judge of whether they are receiving punishment from God the Almighty or whether they are being tried and tested to increase in their spirituality. For example, he says that some people complain that we shouldn't tell the truth. Telling the truth is detrimental because uh, whenever people tell the truth, they either get punished or they're sentenced, so it's better to hide the truth. And the Promised Messiah goes on to say that there has been many times in my life where my, my advocates, my lawyers have told me that a case has been brought against you and so you should lie to save yourself. There's no other way. And the Promised Messiah said that I refused and I told the truth and even though the testimony was seemingly apparently against myself, Allah put into the heart of the judge that I was innocent. And he says, so people who are punished for telling the truth aren't punished for telling the truth. They're punished because they had certain other hidden vices or they had lied at certain other occasions or harmed people or injured people and that becomes the cause of punishment being brought upon against them by Allah the Almighty. It becomes a, a trigger if you will. Mm -hmm. So in the same case, sometimes you're being tried by Allah the Almighty because He wants you to increase in your spirituality. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, what, what is, as Jahangir Sahib said, a, a, a trial for someone else in order to progress spiritually becomes a punishment for another person because they deserved that at that particular time because they had done something in the past. Which, which and it, it's, it's quite true, I mean, the mindset. I mean, when you go through, say, a more uh, a testing time, it's also quite apparent, you know, that people's focus changes as well if they are even you know, religious, and, but their focus and intensity and perhaps the passion with which they pray, the focus is sometimes much more pertinent and that improves their own spirituality because they're that much more focused on advancing their status. Exactly, it doesn't, it doesn't in any way hinder them. On mm. the contrary, mm. we have the case, you know, of a saintly man who was attacked by, uh, this is in the past, of mm. course, several hundred years back, mm. attacked by a leopard when he was down by a river and uh, the leopard left him with, uh, with uh, infected wounds and he was suffering. But people would see him thanking God every day, he would, all day he'd keep thanking God. Mm. And at one point somebody asked him and said, but you've been attacked by a leopard, you're, in you're suffering terribly. Why are you thanking God? And he said, I'm thanking God that I'm involved in a trial and not in sin. Because I could have been involved in sin, but that would have been terrible. I'm involved in a, a trial, so I'm thanking Allah that this is the only thing he's put me in, you know? 
is much better than the other case. So it all depends on, on the, like Ayazab said, on, on the moral stature of, of the person and what they, they derive from the, you know, what they're going through, what they make of it. But good people will always come out even better. And bad people will come out worse. And, and one, one, pertin one point which came to mind also just now when you were saying that is that another principle which the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, has, said, has mentioned is that if a person is subjected to trial upon trial upon trial upon trial and that's all he's seeing, then he needs to worry about his spiritual state, then he's in trouble. But good people, sometimes they are tried, like the man who was attacked by a leopard, and then sometimes they have a life of ease. Mm -hmm. Then they go through, they go through ups and downs. Mm -hmm. But people who are put up against the wall and just pulverized from every direction again and again and again, they have to worry about their spiritual yeah. state. Jazakallah, gentlemen, and my thanks also uh, to uh, Faiza Minhas for her question. Indeed, it was also uh, in part, we have questions. Assalamu alaikum to Ibrahim Ramjan from Mauritius. Um, his first question certainly covered much of the same elements. But if I could move on to Ibrahim Saab's uh, second question. Um, Jangir Saab, he, he's talking about something which uh, impacts all society, actually. It's everywhere, which is about um, films and movies. We see Hollywood, Bollywood, and I suppose other sort of uh, derivatives of where a film is produced, where it's made. And he recalls a time um, previously where perhaps going to the cinema and indeed during the time of previous Khulafa as well within the Amdiya Muslim community, that was said that the habit, or, and it was referred to in that, is it, prohibited because it then detracts perhaps from other things that the individual should be doing it. Fast forward, here we are. And now, I mean, the cinema is, you know, in the home, so to speak, at times, you know, you can download, you can, you know, forget DVDs, you know, and there's other ways where you can switch on television and the whole idea of watching the standard televisions, even here in, in the UK, no longer the case because there's an abundance of different ways you can watch um, different programs, films um, in your own home. Um, and the question is, in that modern context, does that same principle still apply? Well, the principle in Islam is وَهُمْ عَنِ اللَّغْوِ مُعْرِضُونَ So they, the believers, turn away from anything futile, anything vain, which is of no benefit really, you know, and which even could be harmful. But even if it's not beneficial, we're told to turn away from it because it's a time-wasting thing. But as you said, everybody has kind of that mini-cinema in their home anyway. And if somebody has, a, laptop, uh, yes, a little bit of, a b little bit of, um, you know, t free time mm -hmm. or something, yeah. and they want to watch something, I mean, why pay extra money to go to the cinema to do that? Now, people will say, well, you know, we're going out with friends and this and that, but I do know cases where, uh, especially here in the UK, which what I have seen, and I, I imagine it would be the same in many other countries, where young people who are at university, for example. Uh, will be dragged by their friends to go and watch several films a week and what happens then and I know real cases to you know of people to whom this has had happened and they had to pay a price for it later on um, they would uh, go out and watch their films like two three times a week but and that would be coupled with eating out as well and by the time they've reached the end of the month they have gone way beyond their budget mm. because as we know university students are usually hard up and they don't have a lot of money you know, to play around with, but they get caught up in this and then they, uh, they land themselves into, into terrible debt. Uh, 
And in one particular case, it was even a case of the person buying new clothes every week to go out for these outings because he didn't want to be seen in the same things all the time. And the bills were just going up and up and up. And uh, so this is one of the consequences of, of allowing this kind of thing to get into your, creep into your culture. Um, but, but again, I mean, there are no hard and fast rules about this. Whatever rankles in your mind or in your heart, as the Prophet Muhammad said, you should avoid it. If you, if you feel that it, ma it might not be the right thing to do. And everybody has that kind of little voice inside themselves, the voice of conscience, you know, which will tell you what you really should be doing. But there are some uh, aspects of the cinema which might be beneficial. For example, there are um, so many documentaries which are out there which are, which are very beneficial. Some of the films which are portrayed on cinema actually help to bring about reform in, in certain countries as well. And uh, because Most recently, I know we were talking about this, the Oscar winner from Pakistan, Shamim uh, Chunoy, she actually won the Oscar for Best Docufilm. And uh, that actually has been the catalyst for bringing about change in the law behind the so-called misplaced term honor killings in Pakistan. So just picking up on them, yes. point, that's a practical So that's example. an eye-opener for yeah, so many how people. how a film can change society. Exactly. So it all depends. Mm -hmm. It depends on what it is, you know. People have to be the best judge of that for themselves. Mm -hmm. But they have to remember that if they're going to be spending a lot of money on just going to see a film, they could, they could just as well have been watching it in, you know, in some house or something. Uh, and they could use that money for good causes. There are so many people suffering out there. So everything has to be kept in proper perspective, I think. And the balance is, I, I think there's the Hadith, you know, action is judged by intention. What yes. is your intention behind that particular act? And I think, you know, that some degree of self-regulation is always uh, called for. Jazakallah, Janki Sahib. And my thanks also to Ibrahim Sahib for your questions. Um, our next question comes from Yasmin Zafar Saiba from Portland, Oregon in the United States. Um, Yasab, if I can start with you, she's referring to issues where, you know, people's sort of mindsets, perhaps they're not their own in the sense she talks about um, uh, how medical conditions between, uh, within an individual may cause them to commit a particular crime or a particular act. Uh, other times there's various traumas that have taken place which causes, you know, we hear about it all the time, a split personality mm -hmm. um, occurs. And because of this disturbance in their mind, because of perhaps an illness, embedded in their brain or whatever, has caused them then to commit a particular crime or a particular act, which if they were in their other state, um, or if they were, had been treated at the right time, perhaps they wouldn't have committed that particular crime. Um, her question is, is a very pertinent one, that if someone of that mindset does commit a crime, will they be punished for it? after they leave this world? Well, how will it account? We talked earlier about how uh, God looks upon our actions and deeds on this world, and there shall be no intercessors. But what if someone's of a mindset where they didn't actually know what they were doing? Well, Tariq Sahib, I'm not sure if you did it intentionally <laughs> or you did it in t or t uh, unintentionally, but the last statement that you made answered mm. this whole question. Um, so shall we move on? But no, uh, <laughs> it's a serious subject. Your, but, uh, uh, th this hadith that mm. you quoted about deeds being based on uh, deeds being based on intentions mm. clarifies this entire issue. That is the principle which Islam follows: that a person's 
actions are not to be judged for their face value, but for the reason, for the intentions behind them. Now, in the case of a, even in worldly laws, for example, when we go to the courts, we find that the judge, whenever there is a case of murder, for example, or when, wherever there is a case of a certain crime being committed, uh, a person's ability at that time, capacity or mental state at that time is very heavily taken into uh, judging uh, whether that person is guilty. A person who has overdosed on drugs or who is a drunk driver who's driving a car and smashes into an innocent family, God forbid, uh, and causes death, of course that is a very tragic occurrence, no doubt. But the same punishment is not given to a person, for example, who does exactly the same thing, but intentionally, but, uh, intentionally or unintentionally for that matter. I mean, a person could be, for example, a, a person could be driving and have a seizure, for example, mm. and not have control over what they did. The ramifications, the consequences which come about as a result of that action, although the, the, the apparent result is exactly the same, the two people will be judged differently. And that is the case with God as well. Allah the Almighty says in the Holy Quran, "La yukallifu Allahu nafsan illa wasaha," that Allah does not burden any soul beyond its capacity. So God is the best judge of how people should be dealt with. So a person who commits an action unintentionally mm. is not equal in the sight of God as opposed to a person who commits commits an action intentionally. The level of a person's understanding also has a great deal to do with uh, how responsible they are held for what they are doing. For example, in the Holy Quran, Allah the Almighty says to the wives of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, who we affectionately refer to as the mother of mothers of the believers, that if you commit a sin, you will be held accountable times two. You will be double responsible for what you have done. Why? because they were the wives of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. They were blessed with the good fortune of living in the personal company of the Holy Prophet, peace they be upon him, better. so they should know better. And that's the case with all, that, that principle can be trickled down to other aspects of society as well and applied equally. So in the case of a person who commits a crime not knowing any better, they will not be held responsible equally as opposed to someone who knows exactly what they're doing and still does that. So in the case of a person's mental state of mind at the time of committing an action, that definitely is very relevant and must be taken into account uh, when a verdict is issued in the world and also in spiritual matters as well. Just as a final point on this, Yangi Sub, just picking up, that's very poignant as well that we have worldly laws, the justice systems, they're reflective of that same, we believe, you know, divine laws as well, that when God Almighty is referred to, he's referred to as God of mercy and compassion within the context from Islam, indeed the Holy Quran refers to God as such, that we also find that reflective in man-made laws as the Yasab alluded to. Yes, and especially in, in uh, advanced, more advanced and developed countries, we'll find mm. that they always, the judge always looks for mitigating circumstances in any, any way possible. Sometimes a, a first-time offender will get away with a, a, t a good telling off, mm. and the judge might think that this is sufficient. You know, this person is so repentant and so sorry that they're, not, they're evidently not going to go back to doing these things ever again. So this is how we have to be. We always have to err on the side of uh, mercy, rather than being vindictive and trying to, you know, uh, punish people by any means. 
when you see people like this, then you know that for a fact that these people have lost their humanity mm. and that no good can be expected from them. We see, for example, in the, the, you know, these ramshackle courts that are being set up by Daesh, uh, ISIS, or whatever you'd like to call them, um, it, it seems that nobody who enters there as an accused is going to leave without being punished in one way or another. Yeah. And usually the punishment is going to be something absolutely sordid. So these people have give, given up on humanity. That's not the way to be. That's not at all the religion which Islam has brought to the world. And, and uh, yeah. but that, that if I, I mean, we digress slightly, but just picking up on that point to the observer who isn't from the Muslim world and, you know, Muslims and indeed others of other faith abhor and, as you rightly said, these vulgar atrocities committed by the organizations such as Daesh and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, they seek in themselves, they claim as erroneously as that claim may be to act in the name of Islam. I mean, the question I know is more for them than perhaps for us to answer, but why and where and uh, under what premise do they, are they able to make that relationship? Well, obviously because these people, these people claim to be Muslim. That's, the, mm. that's all they have in their favor. Otherwise you see the recruits, as we've said many times, are going over uh, to, to join them. Uh, and in their, in their personal possessions, you'll find Islam for dummies, for example, mm -hmm. or Quran for dummies, because they don't know anything. They don't know the ABC about Islam. But then they go and claim that they're, they're the ones who are showing what true, the true caliphate is. So it's all a farce. It's a, it's a political thing. It's a game of greed and power. That's all it is, you know. But I suppose just dwelling in the context of the question, there's an immaturity there. There's a lack of understanding. So someone who becomes under the influence of, say, an individual or a group such as Daesh, suddenly they get to these places like Iraq and Syria, realize actually what they've done is fundamentally flawed. And they do come and back. And they come back. And, yes. and that, that's the challenge which I think many countries now face because they're obviously at times, as you rightly said, they're not even educated about their own yeah. religion. And they are naive, much akin to a child. A child may commit a particular yeah. thing at home and you know, they're told off or they're disciplined in a particular way. But as that child matures to a younger person, if they were to commit the same thing they did as a three-year-old when they were a 15-year-old, yes. the context is very different. Of course, as Ayasab has very yeah. eloquently yeah. explained, exactly. But I think that the countries to which these people are returning, these, these countries are also struggling with how they're supposed mm. to cope with these situations. And I think that the best thing would be to take them on a case-by-case -case, uh, you know, way. Because otherwise we'll see laws are, you know, people are attempting to pass laws to revoke nationalities, etc. But that would be like a blanket thing. And everybody would come under the, you know, the, the, the stroke of, that law, of the, such laws. And that might be an injustice because some, some of those people maybe were really immature and they weren't really, you know, able to, to judge for themselves what they were doing. So it has to be a, on a case-by-case, -case, uh, you know, uh, way, I mean, to, 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 deal, to, to, deal, with to deal with this, yes. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah for that. And uh, we'll move on, if I may, and <coughs> to our next question, which comes from uh, Kaplan Jehan from uh, France, uh, from Paris. Um, yes, I, if I could come to you with this. Um, Kaplan has written to us he, he, quite in a very sort of personal way. He's been studying um, Islam and he's particularly been studying the Amdia uh, community and the interpretations of uh, what we believe to be the true renaissance of Islam. And he has a few questions that have come from that, particularly those relating to the issue which 
often is the differentiating factor between the Ahmadiyya Muslim community and as others would may perhaps turn other forms of uh, the Sunni denominations within Islam, which is over the death of Hazrat Isa al-Islam, the revered prophet Jesus, who all Muslims accept as a prophet of God. But the question relates to how he passed away. Now within Kaplan's uh, question, um, talks about what the Amdiya Muslim community's belief is, that Jesus came, fulfilled his mission both in, in Palestine, but then traveled to the lost tribes of Israel, but actually was put physically on the cross, but didn't die or, or wasn't crucified, but actually fell into a swoon, recovered from that and went on to complete his uh, holy mission for which he was designated. Indeed, you know, we know we read in the Bible as that he was sent unto the lost tribes of Israel, which were then spread far and wide beyond the Holy Land that, as we know it. Now, he's been studying Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, the founder of the Amdiya Muslim community's writings, and laid those against another revered individual within Islam, someone who was regarded with great respect, uh, particularly on the Indian subcontinent, who was regarded himself as a reformer and a majaddid in his own right. And of course, I'm referring to Shah Waliullah Sahib of Delhi, who wrote quite extensively. And he said he's been also reading some of his books, um, which then he laid against the teachings of the Amdiya Muslim community, particularly the writings of the Promised Messiah, whereby Shah Waliullah Sahib says that there was a substitute, there was someone else who was put on the place instead of Hazrat Jesus, Hazrat Isa al-Islam. And he refers to a particular book and the translation in that respect. So he says that how can he bring these two together? That from one side, and he's wrestling with his conscience, he accepts and he's seen virtue in studying the Amdiya Muslim community, in particular the writings of the Promised Messiah. But at the same time, he's wrestling, understandably, with this challenge within that here is a great reformer like Shawaliullah Sabadeli, who's revered as well, who says something very different to what the belief of the Amdiya Muslim community is in that respect about who was put on the cross. Was it Hazrat Isa al-Islam? Was it Hazrat Jesus? Or was it someone else in his place? Tariq Sahib, um, when we talk about this issue, one thing and the variance of opinion amongst the various scholars, one thing which doesn't directly relate to the issue of Jesus being put on the cross, but is important to mention at the outset. That is that there is no doubt that many scholars and many mujaddideen reformers came throughout the ages who did wonderful service to Islam mm -hmm. throughout the ages. We accept that, we revere them, mm -hmm. and we, we hold them in high regard, including uh, Hazrat Shah Waliullah Sahib of Delhi. But one thing which needs to be understood is that the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam, peace be upon him, said that in the latter days, the reformer who would come as the hakam and adal, which means the just arbiter or the person who would establish justice, the hakam, the judge, who would, who would put a verdict down as far as issues of differences were concerned, that was only one. Mm -hmm. And that was going to be the promised Messiah and Mahdi who was to come whoever that was going to be. We believe that that man who came as the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, in the form of the Messiah and Mahdi of the latter days and who was going to be the judge and decide on matters of difference of opinion, that was Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad of Qadian, peace be upon him. And 
he is that man about whom uh, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that when he comes, he would be a Nabiullah, he would be a prophet of God. So his verdicts would be judged not by his own ijtihad or his own ability to analogically reason the source texts of Islam, but his judgments would be based on divine revelation from God the Almighty, where there is no ability, where there is no chance of error. Mm -hmm. Now, we believe that Yes, there is scholars like Shah Waliullah Muhaddas Delvi, uh, may Allah have mercy on him, who said that a uh, that Jesus was put on the cross. Uh, Jesus was not put on the cross, but a person in his likeness was put on the cross. Some scholars say that uh, there was a thief, and his face was miraculously. Uh, swiped over and transformed <coughs> into the face of Jesus. So the Jews thought that they were actually putting Jesus onto the cross, but Jesus had escaped and uh, someone else was put in his stead on the cross. The promised Messiah, peace be upon him, says that this is false and against the teachings of the Holy Quran. And if I may also add, the promised Messiah also says that there are certain issues of theology, certain matters, which Although they are very clearly mentioned in the Holy Quran, this is the wisdom of Allah the Almighty, that He kept those things hidden from the minds of past scholars. Mm -hmm. And it was destined that in my age, upon my coming, I would reveal those divine secrets through revelation. And this is also one of those issues. Now, let's put into, let's analogically, logically reason out this, this thing. Is it, is, does it make sense for someone else in the likeness of Jesus to be put on the cross? I would humbly state no. And the promised Messiah says that as well. He states, uh, and of course we also say so because the promised Messiah has taught us this. Mm -hmm. The Quran teaches us this. Why did the Jews want to put Jesus on the cross? Mm -hmm. There was a reason for that. The reason the Jews wanted to put Jesus on the cross is because they believed him to be a false man, an imposter, mm -hmm. and they said that he was false. So in order to prove that Jesus was false in light of the teachings of the Torah, they wanted to put him on the cross mm -hmm. because the to and they wanted to kill him on the cross because the Torah says that an accursed man dies on the cross. Mm -hmm. So they went through all of this to put him on the cross and prove to people that, look, see, this man, we've killed him on the cross and the Torah says that people who die on the cross are false, they are imposters, so Jesus is also an imposter. Now, if God the Almighty secretly behind the back door, slip Jesus out and put someone else on the cross in his stead, that the Jews would have succeeded in their purpose. They would have succeeded in successfully humiliating Jesus in front of the people. They would have been able to misguide Jesus. Uh, the people uh, who came, uh, who were in Jerusalem at that time, to show that, look, we've put Jesus on the cross and we've, we've proven that he's a false man. So, it was important that they not succeed in this mm -hmm. purpose. That's why God would not have done that, logically speaking. Secondly... Otherwise, he'd be accused of deception. Right, exactly. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. That, mm -hmm. And secondly, God would have been... Is God a deceiver? Does he, have to, does he have to hide from the Jews and slip Jesus out? And is there no other way that he can protect a prophet of God? Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. So we believe that this is not according to the Holy Quran, if this had been the case, if the Jews were successful in putting a man on the cross who looked identical to Jesus, they would have succeeded in their ultimate purpose. And we believe that is not true. God would never have allowed that to happen. So Jesus was put on the cross 
but he was taken off the cross in a state of soon, as you mentioned. And then he went to the lost tribes of Israel to convey the message that he had brought. And he successfully did that. And we believe that all prophets of God, they always are successful in completing their mission. Mm -hmm. If Jesus had died on the cross, if he had been raised into the heavens uh, to save him, to be saved, then he would have, his, his mission would have been incomplete. And then it, at the end, if I may say, that if that is the case, that God takes people to heaven if they're being put to trial, well, the Holy Prophet of Islam, who is our master, who is the chief of prophets, he went through so many more trials through his life. Mm -hmm. He was stoned in Taif. His companions were dragged in the streets. He was emotionally tormented by the disbelievers because his family members were butchered mercilessly and God never took him to the heavens to save him. So this is not the way of God. This is not the practice of God. Jazakumullah, Ya Sahib. Just as a final point on that as well, Jahangir Sahib, and just focus in, I mean, one of the uh, key principles, as uh, Ya Sahib has already alluded, that when the promised Messiah arrived, his, his claim was made, that everything was on the premise of not someone else's writing but the word of God and this is the challenge or the contention which is sometimes put forward that physically as you know we're yet to with that one exception if you were to believe what other Muslims hold that you know Hazrat Jesus, Hazrat Isa al-Islam was bodily ascended to heaven yet actually even within the Quran we read about you know that everyone must die that every person dies a death and it's it's their spirit which is lifted. Yes, the Prophet Sallallahu based all his claims on the Holy Quran. It was there for everyone to see, but the, the whole matter is that was it crucial for them to know this before it was his appointed time to appear? Mm -hmm. I mean, what does it change a person's faith during the 1300 years preceding the arrival of the Imam Mahdi and the Prophet that Jesus had been put on the cross or not? had been taken up to heaven or not, it wouldn't change anything for them because that wasn't crucial to their faith. And the Mujaddideen or the reformers who appeared in Islam only came to reform things which are crucial for their people for that time. Mm -hmm. Another point I'd like to, to put forward is, very briefly, is that they, none of those Mujaddideen of those reformers were for the entire Islamic world and for all time. None of them asked all the Muslims to come and, and swear allegiance to them. They didn't do that. They were only local reformers for some particular aspects of Islam, and they did a good job of that. But one of the crucial matters was not the death of Jesus on the cross or, or being saved from the cross by whatever means. That wasn't an issue. It only became an issue when the real Messiah was about to come. Then they needed to get their, you know, aqidah or their belief in, in, in order. You know, they had to get it straight so that they could accept and recognize the Messiah coming. So if we see the reformers of the past erring in some of these matters, it's only because these matters were not crucial to them or to their people. But when you see the Prophet Muhammad coming as the Hakam and Adal, you know, the just mm. judge who's going to, the arbiter who's going to decide where they made mistakes or whatever, he comes to correct the things which are now crucial to the world. Indeed. Because if they don't accept him, we can see the result of that today in the Muslim world where there is chaos, there is anarchy, there is strife, there is war, there is death. Because these people did not listen to the Messiah who was coming to tell them that, listen here, this uh, jihad and uh, this concept of holy war is now uh, put on hold.
it, it doesn't hold anymore because people are not trying to destroy Islam by the sword. So by not listening to that, they have paid a very heavy price and they're still paying it. So it's crucial to the Muslims of today to recognize the Messiah. And for that, they have to get these beliefs in order, you see. Gentlemen, Jazakumullah for that very comprehensive, as ever, answer. And my thanks also to Kaplan Jahan for the question. Um, we're going to move to our next question, which comes from Kutsia Ward Saiba from Cornwall in the United Kingdom. Um, Jahangir Saab, Kutsia Saiba is talking about, you know, within Islam, within often the anything to do with the swine, anything to do with pigs generally or pork, etc., is looked, you know, it's a prohibited. Uh, it's, it's mentioned as being haram, but there's a great, as she writes quite rightly within her question, there's a real revulsion with anything, not just in the eating, or, but also anything associated with it, you know, from images to, you know, when children's books even have, you know, representations, there's cartoons now for children which represent, and there's a great, great you know, from, a, from the Islamic world, from Muslims generally living elsewhere as well, there's a, a kind of detachment or revulsion attached to it. Um, and she says there's that, and, but you put that parallel to get against something else which is also talked about being haram is forbidden within uh, Islam, which is that of the concept of interest. And she said in very practical terms, quite often you'll see, you know, people w won't actually do away with a credit card, but if that credit card is, you know, you know, if you talk about images or cartoons of uh, swine or pigs or whatever, there's a, there's a greater revulsion, I guess she's saying, attached with that yeah. rather than the concept of interest. It is very understandable because yeah. arguably uh, interest is far more harmful to mm. the world than the consumption mm. of, of uh, consum consumption, sorry, of the f flesh of uh, swine. Mm. So why that revulsion? Yeah. I, think, I think basically it's a, it's a visceral thing. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a human reaction, a natural reaction that we have towards anything which is kind of uh, in our minds, which is toxic, which is dangerous to our, if we eat it. Mm -hmm. And so if we see anything like that, we'll immediately have the gagging reflex. For example, if we, if we pass by uh, an animal that's been, uh, let's say, roadkill, and it's been on the road in the heat for a day or two, it, even the smell of it from a mile off can set off the more sensitive ones and they'll start gagging and they might even throw up, mm -hmm. you know. And that's only a, a mechanism to protect human life so that if any of that, God forbid, enters the, the system, it will be ejected. Mm -hmm. And this by, by, by association then, anything which has to do with that, even the thought of it, some people, for example, they'll, they'll say, please don't talk about this thing now, let me finish my breakfast. Mm. Although just listening to something isn't neither giving you a sight nor a smell nor anything like that. You're hardly ingesting it. Yeah. But, but it's by association. It's that visceral thing, which is a very, very ancient reflex, which we have from way back when our ancestors weren't even looking very human at all. And so it's very difficult to get away with that. But on the other hand, interest is an abstract concept. And that doesn't evoke the same, provoke the same kind of reactions in our bodies. And so that perhaps explains why Muslims don't react so, you know, viscerally to having a, a credit card in their pockets as they would to just seeing, you know, even a depiction of a, of a, of a pig in an in a har otherwise harmless cartoon, for example, as you, you pointed out. Yes. I mean, and, and in that, I mean, there's generally this, just taking the concept of interest, for example, I mean, there is a recognition now, you know, but, and there always has been within Islam that if it can be avoided, 
it should, you know, but you live in a world which is, its whole economic structures, its whole foundations are very much based around the concept of interest. Yes, even if we try to implement a more Islamic kind of economic system, mm. we're all caught up in the wheels of this machinery which is ruling the world today. Mm. So having a credit card is not an option, really. If we have to have it, then it's going to be attached to interest somewhere down the line. Mm -hmm. Whereas using uh, any product from uh, uh, from a pig is a choice. So it's something which we we can either choose to have or not. Mm -hmm. The other case is not a, a matter of choice, you see, unfortunately. And sometimes, I suppose, just taking the issue now, we talked about interest, but about um, the use of the pig or parts of the pig or whatever. I mean, in all cases, you know, we've seen you know, spreading, for example, heart disease. You know, there's been certain tests, medical advancement has been tested on, you know, the heart of a pig before it's then looked upon from human beings. That's one example of it. There'll be other areas just practically, you know, the bristles on a broom for a garden, for example, made. You know, I'm, I'm just extending that there's use. For, and here, this is God's creation, I think. Kutsia Saiba also validly said, you know, God, it didn't, pigs just didn't appear. They were created because well, God wills. Some kind of yes. a use. But the thing is, the principle in the Qur'an is that if something has some kind of advantage, then the Qur'an recognizes that. For example, we know how much uh, alcohol is forbidden in Islam. Yet, Allah says in the Qur'an that it has some advantages, but its disadvantages outweigh the advantages. So it doesn't disregard the, the advantages at all. But even for the pig, God says that whoever is, is forced by hunger, by circumstance, mm -hmm. If that person has to eat the flesh of swine, it will not be held against him or her. So again, human life, saving human life is paramount. Mm. I mean, we don't eat pig in the uh, uh, pork in the first place because we're trying to protect our health. So if now we're in, a, in dire circumstances and our, our very life is put on, on the line, mm. we're obviously not going to refuse something which could save our lives, you know. But uh, let's just hope that we don't have to face such circumstances and we don't have to be put into that predicament in, in the first place, hopefully. Jazakumullah Jahangir, some of my thanks also to Kutsia Saiba for her question. We're just moving into the last few minutes of the programme. Um, we'll take what I hope may be a sort of a bridged answer to one of the questions, which comes from Ibeyimi Doyeb from uh, Nigeria. His question relates to the hadith of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that says that Prophet, Hazrat Prophet Adam was created on a Friday, um, the world would come to an end on a Friday, so on and so forth. He's r relating various elements uh, about the, the name Friday or the day Friday. And then he goes on to say that in the world we live in, Friday for, you know, in, in Australia may be something else for another country, so which is quite understandable. You know, the, some countries are a day ahead or at least half a day ahead. So the question is, is this hadith to be taken literally or metaphorically? Well, there's no harm in taking it literally. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it did happen on a Friday, it happened on a Friday, <laughs> and then that's it. It's the end, of the end of it all. I guess he's getting, is there a significance behind? Because Friday obviously is regarded by Muslims as a start of the week, the end of the week, or in the sense that it's a holy Friday day is a significant well. day. But whether it happened on a Friday because it was significant, only Allah knows. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should uh, you know, worry too much about this. Whatever day it happened, it happened. And if uh, the Prophet of Islam said and is reported to have said that these events happened on Fridays, well then they happened on Fridays and 
you know, let's just take it at face value. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panellists and say Jazakumala to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.